0: Well, now let's turn again in Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, Chapter Two. And we will be reading together verses forty one through fifty two. Let us pray. Our Father, we now ask that the Holy Spirit will illumine the page of Holy Scripture. Scripture which is without error in the the whole and in the part. We bow under the authority of your word. We long to. We do not claim to understand it all, but we want to understand it all. We do not claim that our lives are all that they should be. But as Christians, we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, And how thankful we are that even in your discipline of us, no harshness hast thou and no bitterness as we have just sung. And so, Father, use this word to change our hearts and to conform us to the image of Christ himself. And, Lord, undoubtedly there are people here who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives, and we pray that the Holy Spirit will draw them out of darkness into the kingdom of your own dear Son, the kingdom of light. As the word of God is proclaimed, may it be true that there is not not ever a service that we have of worship of your name in which your people are not fed the truth and in which someone lost does not come to know Jesus. Will you hear our prayer? For we long for this, and we know, Heavenly Father, that as we contrast ourselves with your majesty and humble ourselves under your word, that you have promised that if we humble ourselves, we will be exalted in due time. In the name of Christ, in whom we have union, in whom we are exalted, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of the word. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 41. This is the word of God. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The word of the Lord. Let us be joyful in receiving it. Please be seated. Now we saw, especially in Simeon's song, that the obedience of Christ under his Father's will was being stressed. What the theologians call the active obedience of Christ, his obedience to the law that we broke, and his passive obedience, that is to say, paying the penalty of our sins. There are not two obediences, but one, but the theologians make that distinction, and it's a good biblical distinction. If Jesus did not obey the law that you and I broke, if he did not pay the penalty of our sins on the cross, we would be lost forever. We could not save ourselves. And that obedience of Jesus is stressed to the Father once again in the text that we have just read this morning. Now, have you ever asked yourself the question, as Jesus grew, was he conscious that he was the Messiah? Well, the answer to that is without question, yes. He knew who he was. He knew who had sent him. He knew from whom he had come. He knew for what he had come. And as he grew, there was a gradual self disclosure of his identity and his calling. Now, here in this passage, we have another indication from his early boyhood of his identity and of his calling. And the more we look at this simple text, the more we see in it, especially his internal compulsion to be obedient to his Father as he came into this world to save us sinners from our sins. So as we make our way through Luke, we've come to this passage, and the first thing that we see is the family trip to the feast. The family trip to the feast. His pious parents, his adopted father Joseph, and his mother Mary, bring him to the feast of the Passover. You will recall that the Old Testament commanded that men come to Jerusalem to attend the three annual feasts Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And as the nation was scattered abroad, this was practiced once per year. They did not have to stay the entire week, but they could come only for a day and go home. But Jesus' parents came to the Passover annually, according to verse 41, and they stayed for the entire week. Passover, 15 Nisan, sometime in March or in April, was a focus on the miraculous deliverance of the people of God from Egyptian bondage as the blood was put upon the doorposts, as the firstborn of Egypt were killed, and God's people were led through the Red Sea by the mighty hand of God. The law did not require that women attend, but Mary. She's a very pious woman, and this shows a very pious family. They all come to the feast of the Passover. Now, tell me if you do not think this is remarkable. It is remarkable that Jesus, who is Himself the Passover Lamb, to whom John will point and say, "Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world," that Jesus, who is the Passover Lamb, Lamb is attending. A Passover feast, submitting to the law in order that he might redeem us from its curse. Coming to a Passover feast, but later as the Passover lamb, he would go to the cross in order to remove God's wrath from us. The entire priestly service of the temple, all of the sacrifice, all of the priestly service, all of this finds its fulfillment in Jesus And we are reminded once again of Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Possibly, they traveled, probably really, in a caravan to avoid robbers and generally for safety. In verse 44, we are told they came up in the group. Plummer takes us, one of the old commentators, to a modern example of Bedouin. We'll return to this later, but villagers probably traveled together to the feast of the Passover. Now Jesus at this time is 12 years old. 13 was the time children were considered responsible before God, but again we see the family piety, teaching children about the Lord. The parents teaching the children about the feast days teaching them, we would say today, about the ways of the Lord and his church. Now it's not far-fetched, even though this is a unique event in Jesus' life, a unique event, an unrepeatable event in redemptive history, it is not far-fetched for us to apply this to ourselves and to our own children and to our own families, is it? Here we see the family of Jesus... Bringing him and undoubtedly his other half brothers at this time to the feast of Passover because they want them to be a part of the people of God in this great feast. Does this say nothing to us about family piety, about the role of father and mother in the nurture of our children? We would say today, This is the family that never misses a stated ministry of the church, a stated preaching opportunity, a stated worship opportunity of the church. This is the father who says to his children, No, we don't miss Sunday morning to play soccer. We owe God our worship. We are going to be in worship with the living and true God. It doesn't matter what the pressure is, there's no pressure to me. We're going to be in worship. This is the father who prays with and for his children, the mother who prays with her children, who opens the word of God, who catechizes, who teaches with the prayer that the Lord will open the child's heart and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's its application to us. Matthew Henry said, those children that were in their infancy dedicated to God should be called upon when they are grown up to come to the gospel Passover, to the Lord's Supper, that they may make it their own act indeed to join themselves to the Lord. In other words, you children must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You are called to know the God of your fathers. You must come to know this Christ for yourself. Now I ask you parents, do you want your children to be well prepared for life? Do you? Do you want your children to be well prepared for the hardships that will come in life? Do you? Do you want your children to be well-prepared when the time of death comes? What do you want for your children? What do you long for your children? As Mr. Valeni said in his class this morning, and I keep seeing these parallels with our texts and what we talk about, do you want your child just to, to do well in school? Do you want him to be a great athlete? What do you long for? What we should long for for our children is that our children know Christ, that our children be godly, that their sins are forgiven, that they know how to live for God and to submit to his authority, that they know this word. And for that to happen, you must set before them a godly example. You must know this Lord Jesus Christ. You must love his word. You must lead your children in the ways of the Lord. You must, as did Joseph and Mary, bring your family to the stated worship services that God has ordained Do we want to grow? Do you parents want to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? The means that God has appointed are the stated worship services of the church with the preached word. Why ever would we miss it? And so I think that's an application from the piety of this family that should go right to the heart of all of us and especially to our parents. And then moving along in the text, we see, secondly, the missing Jesus, the missing Jesus. Let's read verses 43 through 45 again. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing supposing him to be in the group. They went a day's journey, but when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him him. Again, a note of piety. They stayed for the whole week, we are told. And then they traveled back. The Passover festival was over. They probably assumed that Jesus was with relatives. Maybe you're asking yourself the question, how could Mary, how could Joseph be so negligent? Well, I've thought about that. They certainly were not negligent parents. Some of you remember, I remember when I was a boy, most of the parents here can remember, certainly the grandparents, when on a summer's day, I would go out to play with my friends, and as long as I was back by dark, everything was fine. And you can't do that now. But that was the day in which I grew up as a child. I sometimes would go, my home was a long way from downtown Macon, Georgia, but I sometimes would leave on a morning, I would walk miles and miles and miles and go downtown with my quarter or 15 cents or whatever I had. I'd spend the day there looking at the architecture and the sites and talking with people on the streets, and then I would go home. Nobody, it was no problem. And so something like that undoubtedly is happening here. The plumber tells of later Bedouin travel and probably rightly assumes that this is essentially the way Jesus' family would have traveled and he explains why they didn't miss Jesus for so long. This is what he says. The inhabitants of a village or of several neighboring villages formed themselves into a caravan and traveled together. The Nazareth caravan was so long that it took a whole day to look through it. The caravans went up singing psalms, especially the songs of degrees, psalms, Psalm 120 through 24. But they would come back with less solemnity. It was probably when the caravan halted for the night that he was missed. At the present day, the women commonly start first, the men follow, the little children being with the mothers, and the older children with either. If this was the case, then Mary might fancy that he was with Joseph, and Joseph that he was was with Mary. And so one probably assumed that he was with the other. And Plummer cites Tristram's Eastern Customs and Bible Lands for that. However it happened, Jesus remained behind because he was submissive to a higher call in his life than even the call to be with his parents on their return home. Joseph and Mary must have thought that he was in the caravan, and a whole day passed, as Robertson says, one day out, one day back, one day finding him. Where is he? They were concerned, they were worried. And they go back to Jerusalem, and finally to the temple, and they find Jesus there At the end of an anxious search for their boy. Which leads us to the third thing in the text Jesus found. Let's read verses 46 and 47 once again. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And so they found him. They found him in the temple sitting at the feet of the teachers in one of the temple porches, undoubtedly, where teaching would take place. He is listening and he is learning. He is a boy with a spiritual thirst. His relation to these teachers, of course, will change considerably as time goes by, but for now, he is listening to their exposition of the Torah. He is listening to what they have to say. And in verse 47, we are told... And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus' wisdom astounded the crowd as he dialogues with the teachers, and they are astounded at his questions, they are astounded at his answers. Now what is being stressed here? What is being stressed here is the true humanity of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, The true humanity, as it is stressed, of course, in verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Or, as we also saw in verse 40 of this chapter, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. We rightly stress the deity of Christ Jesus is God, He is the second person of the Trinity. But we also rightly stress that he became incarnate, that he became a human without ceasing to be God, and that he is fully God and fully man. As Chalcedon, one of the great councils of the church, put it, perfect in Godhead, perfect in manhood. But never forget true manhood. He was a baby. He had to grow as a boy. He had to learn. He had to ask questions. He took our nature and he took our condition in order to redeem us from our sins. And so Jesus is learning and he is growing because he is a real human being, though also God incarnate. And the pastoral rebuke, the the parental rebuke, is found in verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. She was astonished. The word could be translated shocked. And then at the end of this verse, great distress, comes from a verb, odinao that means to cause pain, actually in the passive, which is here, to feel pain. So she has been so anxious that her heart has been in pain as she and Joseph have looked for Jesus, their son. Undoubtedly, she was frantic. But you know that the pain in Mary's heart will grow deeper, deeper. Simeon told us in verse 35... A sword will pierce Mary's soul also. And she will see this boy grow up to be a man and hang upon a cross. This mother will see her son hanging upon a cross to redeem her and us from our sins. The pain in her heart is just beginning. Jesus' answer in verse 49, he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Now did it ever strike you that these are the first recorded words of our incarnate Lord? And that those words, the first words recorded of Jesus in his human ministry, those words are about bringing glory to his Father in heaven. And Mary, we are told, treasured up these things in her heart. And that must have been the source for Luke. How did Luke learn about this? Undoubtedly, as he researched, Mary told him. But here, there is a very interesting way in which Jesus expresses himself. Did you notice? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I must. A little three-letter word in the Greek, day. But we find that it's used in other Gospels, but limiting ourselves to Luke it's, Luke, it's used by Luke many times to express necessity that is placed upon Jesus in his redeeming work. We find it here. In chapter 4, verse 43, he must preach. In chapter 9, verse 22, he says he must suffer. In chapter 13, verse 33, he must go on his way anticipating his death in Jerusalem, in chapter 19, verse 5, he must stay in the home of Zacchaeus. In chapter 24, verse 7, he must be delivered up to be crucified and rise again. In 22, 37 and twenty-four, twenty-six, 26, he must suffer these things and enter his glory. In chapter 24, verse 44, he must fulfill all that the Old Testament prophets said about him. Jesus' entire life program and call is found in these words. These are the words of the eternal Word made flesh who has come to obey his Father in heaven. The words of the Son obeying his Father's will as he comes to redeem us from our sins. Despite what Jesus' earthly parents know, and they know a great deal from what the angel Gabriel had said to them, they do not understand the mission of Jesus of Nazareth. Do you not know? He says to them, as if he were saying, just think back, mother. Remember what the angel Gabriel said to you? Way back there in chapter 1, you read it in about verse 30 or so. He's the Son of God. He will be the Most High. He has come to redeem his people. But Jesus is acting according to his person his relationship with his heavenly father, and his calling of God. That calling is more than his earthly parents can comprehend. It will lead him to the cross of Calvary. Now, there's a missing element in the Greek New Testament, in the Greek text, that must be supplied in English translation in verse 49. to tu patrasmu, literally translated, it is this. In thee of my father. So it doesn't say, in my father's house. You have to fill it in. The authorized version fills in, do you not know that I must be about my father's business? The ESV that we have read this morning fills in, do you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now I think the ESV is correct. The question to Jesus is basically, son, where have you been? And his answer is, in my father's. That is to say, in my father's house. So we supply the words to make sense in English. If I say to you, I'm going to my father's, what do you think? I'm going to my father's home. I'm going to my father's house or the place where he lives. Well, that's what Jesus is saying here undoubtedly. I must be in my father's house. Jesus says he must be in his father's house where his father manifested his name and presence. In his father's house, where his father was especially worshipped. In his father's house, where his father's plan of redemption was taught and shown in the sacrificial system and through the high priestly work. In his father's house, where his craving for fellowship with his father could be met. In his father's house, where he could learn from the teachers. In his father's house where his father pictured Jesus' mission to the world to save sinners like us from our awful sins. Yes, Jesus must be in his father's house and later will become so upset that his father's house has become a den of thieves that he will even drive the money changers from his father's house. But will you please notice there's something truly great and wonderful here. Something of the greatest importance. Jesus said, I must be in my Father's house. He is saying that he is the Son of God. He is confessing before his mother and Joseph that he is uniquely the Son of the living God. Can you see that the very pinnacle, the very high point of the infancy and now boyhood narrative about Jesus is right here when he confesses that he is the Son of God by calling God his Father. And the Jews will come to understand that that is exactly what he means when he speaks of God as his Father And that's why you remember they took up stones to stone him because he said he was equal with God. This is a wonderful thing. Jesus is aware of the glory that he had with his father before ever the world was. Jesus is conscious of his unique relationship to his heavenly father and that he is, to use the language that I think is is appropriate, he is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is conscious of his unique relationship with his Father, and that's why the must, I must be in my Father's house, because he knows the Father, and he knows his mission. And he knows that his mission will take him all the way to the cross, and to the tomb, and to the resurrection. Have you ever stopped to think about this, to imagine this? We try to shield our children, and rightly so, for things that are too old for them. Don't we? We try to shield our children for those things that are just too hard for them to bear. And that's good, and that's right. We need to help our children to deal with things in age-appropriate ways and from a godly, biblical perspective, but think about Jesus. As he grows, and he knows the glory that he had with the Father before ever the world was, and he knows that he has come because God the Father has given to him a mission, and he knows that he is going to go to a cross, undoubtedly Jesus, this 12-year-old boy, knows when he is learning that he is preparing his mind and his heart to go to a cross and bear the sins of his people. Did you ever think about that? My, you are loved. My, you are incredibly loved. That God the Son would come into this world, and that as He grew, knowing who He was, He knew that He would go to the cross and shed His blood for you. I find that to be astounding, don't you? I find that to be amazing, don't you? I find it to be overwhelming actually to know that he loved me like that and loves me still. It's an amazing thing. No shielding him. No wonder he is called the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But the book of Hebrews also says that he went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. The joy of fulfilling his father's will, the joy of redeeming you and me from our sins. At this point, Jesus' earthly parents do not understand. Look at verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. They just don't get it. And this is one aspect of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He came, and this family did not understand him. His mother and his adopted father do not understand him. The disciples, all through the Gospels, they don't get it. This is part of the suffering of the Son of God as well. What loneliness on a human level. Nobody understands him, nobody gets him, and yet he continues lovingly to serve and to do what the Father had called him to do. Well, we see fourthly Jesus under his earthly parents' authority. We read of it in verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Mom said, it's time to go, son. Yes, ma'am. He was submissive to his parents. In doing so, he was submissive to a greater authority because he is submissive to God's will that he would come and obey the law of God. Ultimately, his submission is such a submission that Philippians 2 tells us, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All of his obedience to the Father, even in subjugation to his earthly parents, lead him on to Calvary. He is made under the law, Galatians 4 says, and now he is submitting himself under the fifth commandment. He created Joseph and Mary, He created them, and yet he is submitting to them. That's also part of Jesus' must. He must obey the fifth commandment. He must submit to his parents, as God had called him to do. And Mary keeps these things, treasures them in her heart, and Luke wants you to treasure them too. Mary didn't understand, and there's much that we don't understand. Mr. Spurgeon said so beautifully, when you cannot put a truth into your understandings, yet lay it up in your affections. If there be anything in God's word which is exceedingly difficult, do not therefore reject it, but rather preserve it for future study. Be not among those who say that they will limit their faith by their understanding. And then we see that Jesus grows in verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, In this text, he's learning and inquiring. He was completely immersed in it. The perfections of his deity, of course, did not increase, but in his humanity, he matured and he grew and matured and would become a man and go to the cross and be raised from the dead. He grew strong in his communion with the Father so that he might bear the burden of our sins in himself. It's an amazing revelation that we have here. I want to bring together maybe two or three of the issues we've touched on in our conclusion to bring some things home to us. The first thing I want to underscore is, again, the first recorded words of Jesus here at the age of 12. And what were those words? They were words that speak of his passion to glorify his father Children, what are your words? Children, I'm speaking to you. Every child here, I'm speaking to you. What are your words? What are your thoughts? Jesus was God who became man. Really God, really man. He had to grow just as you grow. But there was a difference. Jesus was sinless. He never sinned. But children, you are sinners. Children, do you ever fume at your father and mother? No, not me. Do you ever within your heart fume at your father and mother? You know you do. Do you not know that that fuming against father and mother is fuming against God? That the authority of your parents in the fifth commandment is the authority that God gives to them? So we treat you gently as little children, but we do not treat you rightly unless we say you are big sinners. You are little children, but you are big sinners. And it would be cruel not to tell you that you are sinners in need of a Savior. So you can say to me, if you're honest with yourself, little child... You can say, yes, I sometimes fume against father and mother. I sometimes have thoughts that are really terrible. I sometimes have feelings that are just rebellious. What are those thoughts and feelings saying to you? This is what they're saying. They're saying to you, you need a Savior. They're saying to you, children, you need a Redeemer. They're saying to you, when your conscience is stirred up and your conscience is defiled... Your conscience should point you to the Redeemer, to Jesus. Little children need a Savior. Little children are sinners who need Jesus. Everyone born of Adam, everyone descending from Adam by ordinary generation is a sinner in need of grace. That's what the Bible teaches. That's Christianity. Christianity is not, we're all good people. Christianity is we are sinners in need of a Redeemer. And little children, you need a Redeemer. Come to Him. Believe in Him. He's never turned a little child away. This is the Savior who gathered the children to Himself. So little children, talk with your parents about this. You need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. Young people, He's 12 years old. Maybe you're 12, 13, maybe you're 16. But young people... Jesus was enthralled with the Father's will. What will it take for your, for your heart to be enthralled with the Father's will? It will never be sinless. But don't you think you also should be enthralled with the Father's will? Shouldn't you young men be preparing yourself to be godly fathers, godly husbands, godly men? Shouldn't you young women be enthralled with the Father's will rather than all the kinds of things that can wrap you up in this age? All the silly, foolish things, all the silly, foolish things that can wrap up a young woman's heart, a young man's heart. Don't you think that Jesus, who came and was enthralled with his Father's will, is calling you to trust him, believe him, and to count those things important that he counts important? I ask you, young person, is there room in your heart for repentance, for change? And then I want to focus for a few minutes again on the must. Verse 49, do you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now turn to Luke chapter 9 verse 22, just to take a couple of examples that I mentioned earlier. Luke 9 verse 22. Starting with verse 21, he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Or to take one other example, chapter 24 of Luke's gospel, chapter 24, verse 7. Going back to verse 6 of chapter 24, he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, verse 7, that the Son of Man must, must, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So do you see, everything in Jesus' life was under the sovereign decree so that he would go to the cross and bear our sins, And his own heart was so completely in tune with the Father's that he did his Father's will with passion and perfection. Jesus came to save us. He must do that because that is God's plan. But my point is that Jesus' own heart was inwardly compelled to obey the Father for us. All he wanted was to fulfill the plan of redemption and so glorify his Father in saving us from our sins. And so the old theologians are certainly right when they say he bore damnation lovingly. Or we could put it, he bore damnation willingly. The must of this chapter is simply in concert with all of these other references to the must that we find throughout Luke. When he says, I must go to the cross. I must die to redeem sinners. And we want this old gospel, if we are to do sinners good, it must be that gospel. I wonder, do we even begin to understand this divine compulsion, this must in Jesus' heart, that even in Gethsemane, when Jesus is confronted with the terrifying reality that he would bear the wrath of Almighty God, that he is inwardly compelled to sacrifice himself for us sinners. He went to the cross. He was compelled to go to the cross, inwardly compelled. He desired to obey his Father, and he was utterly enmeshed in your guilt and mine, as he would cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the reason, the reason for this inward compulsion, the reason for his desire, the reason, his love for the Father, and his love for you. The reason, Gethsemane, the reason, the cross, the reason for the must, You're the reason. He did it for you. He did it for you. To which God's people add. Amen. Amen.